All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Michael Krupit first joined CDNow as the Chief Technology Officer. He soon took over COO duties and eventually rose to become the CEO of the entire CDNow operation. In this episode, Mike gives us the background on the early days of yet another early e-commerce pioneer. And he gives us some great insights into the attempts that CDNow made to dominate a commerce niche as opposed to Amazon's everything store strategy. But just as fascinating is the fact that around the years 2000-2001, Michael was right there in the thick of it when the MP3 and Napster revolutions first rocked the music industry. This is a fascinating discussion about first being the disruptor, and then eventually becoming the disrupted. Mike Krupit, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Great. Thanks very much for having me this afternoon. Um, I always like to start with a, a little bit dipping our toe into your, your education and your background. Um, and I see that you attended Queens College, CUNY. Um, yep. are you, do you happen to be a New York City native by any chance? I was born and raised mostly in the Bronx. Oh, excellent. Uh, and and you, you got your degree in computer science, and did you get two degrees? Well, it was a joint major. It was the very early days of computer science. So I was an applied math major. Eventually, there was a computer science degree that I could that I could dual major with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, looking at your, your LinkedIn um, for the, the companies that you were with um, after college, um, one that I wanted to ask you about was... Um, Knowledge set, which you refer mm-hmm. to as the the granddaddy of CD-ROM companies, and I, I've said before on this podcast, a lot of people don't remember, but there was a bit of a CD-ROM bubble before <laughs> before the internet bubble. So you must have yeah. you must have had a taste of that. Well, yeah, we were we were we were part of pioneering it. I mean, these are the early days of of personal computers when there were not CD drives built into them, and Sony was beginning to put music onto CDs, and we had this concept that said well why not put data onto cds and we um we did a project um for uh, grolier to put their encyclopedia on a cd and we did a project for federal express 
that was their name at the time, to put maintenance manuals on CD. And, and then, of course, you know, the, the, the user interface and all of the search systems had to be, a lot of that had to be integrated with the adapter hardware of the CD-ROM drives because there was no standardizations of CDs on computers. So um, you had to be, a, you know, a, a sort of a firmware engineer in order to be, build the, be able to build a piece of software back in those days. And you're, um, you're basically a software engineer um, and a, a project manager at, at your first few positions, right? Yeah, so I, I, I left college and, and I, was a, I was a geek and I loved building software. And, and for the first couple of, of companies I worked with, I, uh, I built the stuff. Uh, you were at Verity and then, and then um, tell me what uh, Infonautics was. Infonautics was a, a fascinating company um, co-founded by Marvin Weinberger and Josh Kopelman. And Josh subsequently went on to do Half.com and First Round Capital. But, um they um, they had this concept of taking information and democratizing it for students. Uh, what they would describe at the time was the LexisNexis for kids. Uh, this is pre-commercialization of the internet, so everyone was getting online through AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy. So the idea was let's package a service um, with with these work with publishers, package all of their content into a service, allow really friendly searching over that content. And put it into these online services for kids to access. Um, along the way, the internet happened, right? It became it became commercially viable, and and before we went public, we had to move the whole thing onto the internet. And it became the electric library, and um, that lasted for a few years until people realized you couldn't make money off of content on the internet, uh, especially back in um, those early days in the mid nineties. But um, so, but initially, though, the the you were making. Uh, content deals with the AOLs and, and the CompuServe's of the world. Well, we were, so we were, they were the, they were the portal for lack of a better word, right? They were the provider. They brought us the customers and the connectivity and, and the subscribers, right? So the subscription dollars, mm -hmm. we brought the publishers. So we went after 400 different publishers and asked them to digitize or provide us with their already digitized information and we would we would put it put it into uh, one single database. So you're you're an aggregator that creates channels, I guess, for lack of a better word, on these. Exactly. Exactly. And and so the the move to the web was not very successful at all. Well, the move to the web was very successful. The business model was right, um, right, because all of a sudden now people stop paying for online services. Uh, you know what happened to AOL and Prodigy and CompuServe and Dial-Up? It you know it went away. Um, people stopped paying those subscriptions and, and we had to make our money off of, off of um, charging subscriptions on the, on the on wide web back in those days. And uh, you just, you, you couldn't get people to pay for content. So tell me about um, how you, how you come to CD now, were, were you recruited or um, did you seek them out? How did, how did, uh, how did that happen? If I remember correctly, I was recruited. Um, I, I had decided uh, to part ways with Infonautics for a, for a handful of reasons, and I was looking at what was next, and I wanted to stay in the Philadelphia region. And uh, there was a there was a whole bunch. It was the beginning of you know what we would look back on and call the bubble, right? So um, or or the boom, I guess, depending upon which side of it you're looking. Right, glasses half full <laughs> or half empty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So in this side, it was the boom side, right? It was the very beginning of the boom, and there was a lot of um, a lot of uh, you know good companies forming in Philadelphia. Vertical Net was one of them, uh, and and CD now reached out to me through a recruiter. 
They um, founded by by twin brothers uh, Matt and Jason Olam. They were ready to take their company and bring on really experienced software engineering. They um, they didn't have a, a, a real professional software group at the time. Uh, they had a, a few engineers and a few hackers, and, and Matt and Jason wrote a little bit of code, but for the most part, nobody there had background in, in you know professional experience in software development. So so they sought me out as as um, a CTO. Uh, so you you come on as as the chief technology officer. Correct. The company was about two and a half years old at the time and had about 40 employees. Well, so because you're the first person from CDNow that we've spoken to, I know you weren't there for it. But if you could just give us sort of, you know, the the um, the Cliff Notes version of, you know, the founding story. It's so it's it's two brothers that are right out of college. And from what I read um, in in the book that um, that Jason wrote about about mm-hmm. the founding um, essentially, the idea was that he he sort of had the idea that you could have a better music store, and it it kind of was that that, that simple. The idea and the founding. Yeah, well, he was looking for a, a particular piece of music. He he had been out of school for about a year. Had been working. Was looking for a particular piece of music. Um, um, Miles Miles Davis. And couldn't find it, right? You'd, you'd go to a, 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 what we call them at those days, record stores, right? You'd go to a record store and and you were limited to whatever stock they had on hand. So there could be 200,000 music SKUs out there in catalogs, but you know they would only have 10,000 on the shelf of a music store. And he was, he was a little frustrated, wanted to know why he couldn't buy it through, uh, through some other means and, and saw the internet as a way to as a way to potentially offer people to to buy their music, not not to acquire it, right? Because we're not delivering music online at the time. But like Amazon starting to sell books over the internet, why can't we just sell CDs? And the challenge that you didn't want to keep physical inventory, right? Amazon certainly did it, and it, it was a it was a really it took a lot of time and money to build out that infrastructure. So Jason had a different approach. He he went to um, the uh, the record distributors who were distributing to record stores. Um, so you know, in your music industry, you've got the people creating the music, the people publishing the music, the people distributing the music, then of course the people buying the music. And so these these um, there were distributors who would get the music from the from the labels and and sell them to retailers. And uh, he approached one of them and says, "Well, look, instead of you know shipping Tower Records or Barnes and Noble a case, you know, could you just ship a couple to to individual people? Could you do drop shipping?" And I believe I believe it was Valley Records um, who said, "Yeah, we'll we'll give that a shot." There's this whole new era of e-commerce that we're willing to be part of. Um, so they adapted their systems to to drop ship direct. And and um, and that made CD now possible. So Jason built a store. Um, I believe the first version was was on a Telnet, which was a um, again, it's you know pre-commercialization of the web. It's right. really about about a character-based interface. Um, and then when the web became commercialized, he he at that point um, you know uh, moved you know built a built a web server and and moved the whole the whole system online as well um, onto, onto the web. But it was it was really just a frustration that that there was more music to be had than you could get at, at, at brick and mortar. Yeah, it's interesting because um, you know Amazon essentially has the same business model initially, just to be a middleman, just to be the the 
the person that instead of going to the record store and making a special order or going to the bookstore and making a special order, well, just put the catalogs online and being a middleman, you take a cut for providing the service. But like, it's not. It's not e-commerce as we would think of it today because there you, you don't want the inventory. You're just being the middleman. Correct, and that's um, and that's that's our entire operation. We, they, um, they never never ever had warehouses or anything, except for some swag, marketing swag, or you know frequent buyer bonuses. Um, no, we we never took inventory. Mm-hmm. So. Again, reading reading his book, um, Jason's book, the, it, it I actually was really it reminded me of of the first company I started in terms of like you know you remember the first week that you make a thousand dollars or whatever, but it, it seems like like they unlike other companies, um, especially in the dot com madness era. Um, they they didn't get big fast. They didn't run out and get a whole bunch of venture capital. They literally, for like the first two, two and a half years, um, were just growing based on the revenue that they were bringing in. Is that right? That's correct. Was there was there yeah. um, hesitancy to, to get VC money? Was it about being on the East Coast, maybe? You know, so I, I, I wish I could speak to that. I, I can't. I wasn't there. Um, but but my, you know, by, by just recollection and observation... I, I think it was was just a lack of a desire to do so. Um, yes, in the East Coast at that time, you know, venture capital and, and angel investing was 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 not as easy as it was on the West Coast where I had where, where I had recently moved from. Um, but but I don't think it was the the challenge. I think it was more the desire, right? If if, if you've got a business that naturally that organically is doubling every six months. Why not do it ourselves, right? And and I, I I don't think anybody had a vision when we started this, you know, that 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 we'd be doing 150 million dollars in music as we ended up doing. Um, I I think it was oh let's just sell music. Um, this is this is fun and we're making money. When you're when you're brought in, um, what what is the stage of the company at this point? It's it's maybe two and a half years old, two years old. It, it, it's it's probably two and a half to three years old. It's forty employees. It's about three hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Um, I believe there, there there was an angel investor in at that time, maybe a couple, but mm-hmm. but I I remember one specifically. So when you show up, what is what are the what are the problems you're facing? What are the what are, what are you brought on to do? What are your first tasks that you need to tackle? <laughs> well, well, given the fact that the company had been doubling um, every six months, the stakes were 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 growing um, geometrically and and ultimately exponentially, but yet the technology wasn't advancing at that same rate. Because um, they the, they had basically been hacking it together themselves this whole time. You got it, mm-hmm. and and um, our 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 developers weren't necessarily all professional or experienced developers. We had no systems and processes, assurance, and no product management. The servers lived. Um, we were <laughs> we were located. In an, in an old post office at a train station on the suburban regional rail in Philadelphia, in suburban Philly. And um, there was no air conditioning upstairs. <laughs> the servers were in a closet under the stairs, under the stairwell. Melting, apparently. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. And we couldn't, the developers were all in one room, all six of us. And we couldn't use the window air conditioner unit on uh, because it would make the power go out and the system would go down. So, so needless to say, it was just like, all right, we got to fix this. So uh, I remember my, my, um, 
my first couple of weeks at the company, I, I, I got a folding table and I put it next to Matt's desk. Uh, Matt's, Matt's the brother who had been running technology. And, and uh, so in the middle of the day, the system goes down. Um, I don't recall why, but Matt's like working on other things. And I, and I, I, I tap Matt on the shoulder. Are you going to look at this? <laughs> like, so so the, yeah, well, the site is down to users, you mean? The site is down to users, right. and, and, and Matt's working on something else. He says, well, let me finish what I'm working on. We'll get to it a little later. <laughs> so, so that's a little bit of the culture that I was trying to change at the time. It was just like, all right, well, look, we, we've got a business that's completely um, dependent upon our technology, and we don't necessarily um, have an appreciation for for making that technology um, the, the center of what it is that we're doing. Um, yes, we're a marketing company. We're selling music. That's ultimately how we, that, how we get our revenues. But this is the early days of the internet. We, we couldn't use anyone else's technologies. We had to invent it, and it had to be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you know, if the site's down, nobody's buying music. It doesn't matter how good our brand is. Um, I, um, I, I remember um, we were going to talk to investors, and I was in the car with Jason one day, and I said, Jason, what's the one thing you want me to do. And so of course he rattled, like any good CEO, he rattled off 10 things. <laughs> Jason, Jason, put him in order. Um, and, and eventually I got him to give me one thing. And that was, you know, I want their, I want 100% availability during the holiday shopping season. I said, you got it. Now my, my first challenge was, you know, I, I, needed, I needed professional engineers. My second challenge was um, I needed to put processes in place. My third challenge was I needed to to figure out the right role for Matt, who was in, who was responsible for technology, but didn't want to lead it, but still was very intimately involved in it. And was a co-founder. I was a co-founder, and 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 that was you know look the the, the values the core values that Jason and Matt had were were very they were very well grounded people they had very strong um, and positive values so we had a lot of authenticity in the room and and so uh, I there was never really a conflict of. I joke sometimes that I felt like the third twin because I would talk to Jason and and then I would talk to Matt and I'd relay what Matt and Jason are saying to one another to each other. Um, so so I it it, it was it was very family like CD now back in those days and so the fact was that it didn't matter that that you know the founder was in a sense reporting to me. Um, but but so I set a goal. I said, all right, look, we're going to have 100 percent availability for the holiday season. And oh, by the way, Matt's going to take a vacation because he hasn't been out. Of, he hasn't been out of the office in three years. <laughs> Matt slept in the office. He right. sometimes went home to his parents house and showered and came back to the office. Um, I don't even think when I joined the company, Matt had his own place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, you can't you, you can't keep doubling every six months um, with with uh, unless you break out of that startup culture. So, uh, so that was my goal, right? hundred percent availability, um, real software and, and Matt in a sense becomes dispensable. Matt can get on the road and take a vacation. And you were able to achieve that. We did it. Yep. Yep. We did it. So that, and that, that was the uh, holiday shopping season of 1997. Mm-hmm. Matt took two weeks off, um, he, he actually challenged me even more than I was intending to be challenged. I believe he took two weeks off and took a car on a road trip without his phone. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so talk about no safety net. Right. Um, he, um, our system was up a hundred percent. And I, Some and the, obviously Amazon, that, Amazon was down during that holiday season. Well, Yahoo I, was down during that holiday. I season. I was going to say that would have been the busiest time of year for you. Clearly. It, it, it was, it was a busy time for anyone, e-commerce or all the online portals. They were down. We were up. Um, we did an amazing job. We built a team. We had the right technology. We met, we met all the business's goals. And, and, and because of that, we were able to, um, to, to not only take the company public, but to start doing nationwide advertising. Well, let's, start... let's, let's back up for just one second. Yeah. Because at this point, and even going back to when you join, um, who are your competitors? Or not only who are your competitors, but who do you feel like are your competitors? Is it other online players like Music Boulevard or CD Connection? Or are you yeah. already gunning for like the Tower Records and, and people like that? All the above. So, so first and foremost, it's it's our online competitors, um, uh, Music Boulevard and and CD Universe. I believe at the time were the were the two that that we look over our shoulders back towards. We were we were bigger than both of them. Um, and then then it was online. We we you know online was being challenged by us. You know, we're, we're, we're offline. I'm sorry, brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. What was Blockbuster and Tower Records and all these companies going to go online and start doing what they do? Or were um, were we just going to um, to to eat their business? You know that's interesting. As I, as I'm researching all of these these cases, I can't find an instance where offline was able to beat back online. You know, go, going all the way through to Blockbuster and Netflix and things like that. Um, uh, it's not to say that online destroys offline all the time, but. <laughs> Um, I, I, there's not a case that I've been able to find yet where a, uh, a brick and mortar company beat down and, and, and defeated the online upstarts, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that's because, you know, the, the brick and mortar companies have, um, a, a, an infrastructure that doesn't move as gracefully as a young online company. So, you know, grow, you know, I mean, just logically growing an online company is so much, um, less risky than growing brick and mortar. And once you've got big brick and mortar moving, difficult so um they were they were at a huge disadvantage in part because of their size and in part because of their 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 lack of of mastery of the technology before we get to the the ipo and things like that um i wanted to to just tick off some of the things that i feel like cd now was an innovator in in terms of things that it brought to e-commerce to creating the idea of e-commerce as we understand it now and and one of the things is um it, this seems completely no-brainer obvious today but um providing sound samples of 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 songs and things like that to 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 sample before you purchase and but that was actually really really hard to do at the time tech, techno, technologically just for bandwidth purposes for technical purposes all sorts of stuff it was uh, for legal purposes, right? It was we were breaking new ground in many directions. So technologically, right? I mean, we we didn't have the bandwidth we had. that became a big issue. Um, Music Boulevard, for example, solved it by they 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 ripped and edited all their own sound samples. We ended up partnering with other companies to do it. So Music Boulevard had to have a big pipe and big servers and 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 stream a lot of music, and we we did it more distributed through through third parties. Um, but yeah, that was, it was pioneering grounds to be able to allow, um, people to listen to that music and the technology to deliver those bits of music. And, and then the format, I mean, just think about, you know, back in those days, what format do we, do we distribute that music in windows media, 
real audio. Um, <laughs> there's there's a MP3. Um, there was all these competing and conflicting um, ways of, the, of of people listening to their music. Um, and, and in fact, um, I, I remember Microsoft paying us a, a lot of money to start adopting their uh, you know Windows Media file. Mm-hmm. I, I, this is just my own pro- possibly faulty recollection, but I always remember it being mostly real audio. Was that was that the biggest uh, format well, at the well, time? For us, um, we did a lot of real audio because we worked with a provider who who had that. Um, although we were, you know, we did start to do Windows Media um, for a fair amount. Um, another thing to mention is is things like. Um, you know, the, like the the my CD now page, the wish list, like introducing yep. um, personalization because you know music is a very personal taste driven thing. And yeah, and go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no. So we were we were pioneers in, in that. Is that my CD now was it was a huge undertaking for us because nobody else on the internet was doing it. In fact, Amazon had tried and backed off. They failed. Um, we we did some of it on our own. We worked with partners like Net Perceptions who had a collaborative filtering engine to really offer people the ability to see the homepage and recommendations and emails that were custom tailored to them and hope unintrusively, right? Based on their buying habits and behaviors, as opposed to, as opposed to them filling out forms of, of, of what they like and what they don't. Uh, and so we, we, we pioneered that. I mean, we were really the first major online retailer um, e-commerce system to, to really do that. That's that level of personalization. And what about uh, things like ratings and, and recommendations of if you like this, you like that? Exactly. So, so those were all data points that went into the, um, the collaborative filtering engine that made, made custom recommendations for you. Uh, another thing to tick is um, being very, very early on the affiliate program, which might have predated you, but if you have any recollections nope. on that. I'll- I, I, I wasn't there for the early days of it, but I was there with, you know, while we were still the first. Um, we, we, um, we pioneered affiliate. Um, Cosmic Credit was, was um, uh, another big undertaking that we took. And, and we did it in a way that put music people in charge of it, right? And that, that was something that, that I think made, made CD Now different was that we, we didn't, our, our customer service agents, many of our developers, um, certainly all our business people were music people. They got the industry. They loved music. And so, 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 you know, the opportunity to work for CD now was, was a, a dream come true for many of them where they can bring their, their professional careers and their, their personal passions together. Um, so, so that's, that's partly why the affiliate program works so well is because we were, we were music fans reaching out to other music fans to promote the sale of our music. So that, that kind of brings us up back to the, the Christmas of, of 97, which I feel like um, was one of the, the first big Christmases for e-commerce. Um, but it was also big for you guys because when the IPO is after Christmas of 97 or before? No, it was after. After, right. But it's around this time that I think you did get some more VC money in. Um, and so you're starting to market in a very big way. Like you, you start to sponsor the American Music Awards and the Grammy Awards and things like that. Yeah. So we, um, we, we, we did what was called a mezzanine round because we wanted to go public. So we wanted to go public with, with cash in the bank. 
So we did the mezzanine round and we started spending it. All right. So, so first and foremost, we spent it in the online portals, right? Back then, you know, remember AOL, Yahoo, Yahoo. Um, I'm trying to think of who else was there at the time. Alta Vista, Alta Vista. Lycos. Yeah. Right. Every, everybody wanted exclusivity. So to, you know, this is, this is before, right. You know, performance based advertising. So to, to get in bed with Yahoo or AOL, we'd have to do a $3 million deal or, or some deals as big as $8 million. In parallel with all of that, we wanted to build our credibility, our brand in the music industry. So we had to do deals with Rolling Stone and MTV. And, and total extension of that was, well, like, let's start advertising and marketing like, a, like a, a real music retailer. And that's when we decided to do offline advertising, uh, um, offline advertising on television and, and focused on the American Music Awards and, and the Grammys. Well, and just just to underline that though, um, wasn't like the the deal with MTV like a twenty million dollar deal or something? Like it was over several years, but I mean these are yes. these are enormous deals. These these are enormous deals, which is which is why you know the, the cash went quickly. Mm-hmm. But but yes, uh, the, and and there, you know, there are some performance based attributes of these deals, but for the most part, you know, you you are writing three million dollar checks, um, and and that. It, you know, that got you placement as to, you know, to be the, um, you know, to be the, the place where, where that portal can, can sell your music, whether it's MTV or, or, or Yahoo. And, um, there was no other way of doing it online back then. And how, like how, the question I want to ask is, is how effective was it? Um, like, you know, one of one of the things is is that I feel like the the dot com bubble burst because people eventually woke up and realized that the online advertising wasn't converting. I, I'm yeah. not asking you for specific numbers or percentages or, or things like that, but did you guys get the sense that that all of a sudden you're throwing these millions of dollars out there and is is it working for you? So <laughs> we were we were one of the other things we pioneered were metrics and we were we were extraordinarily um, driven by um, numbers, which is sort of what everyone does today. But but back then, um, you know, nobody had, you know, no offline retailers didn't have access to the data that we had access to. So um, we were very much driven by the numbers. We knew that none of these deals were paying off. Right. That that it was cost. You know, music is a is a low margin product. We knew the lifetime value of our customer. It was costing us to acquire a customer in every given channel, and we knew that we were losing money in many of those channels. Um, you know, the the most effective and efficient platform was was affiliates. Right, thirty percent of our revenues came from affiliates, and they were our most profitable customers. Wow, thirty percent. Um, but. But the 50% that came unbranded, that, that just typed in cdnow.com and, and came to us um, without any attribution, that we had to say, all right, look, we're doing these deals with AOL and MTV and Rolling Stone and, 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 and Yahoo, so they must be paying off in terms of brand, right? Because we couldn't justify it with the, with the, with the CPA of, of just an acquisition of a single customer. Um, you know, you know, a, a few years later, when we decided to sell the Bertelsmann, we used that as an opportunity to get out a lot of these deals because these deals just weren't worth it. I mean, we, we in the, the couple of years we had these deals, you know, we we we, we knew that it, it wasn't a, a way to grow the business. Again, um, to, to, to frame it in terms of the competitors, um, you're, you guys are successful in terms of basically being. The, the king of the online pack against, you know, the music boulevards and people like that. Um, but, like, at, at what point 
are you feeling like you're really competing and you're a real threat to the the virgins and the and the tower records and and people like that I think there was a point when we realized that one percent of the music sold in the United States is sold through CD now, and, and that was a that was sort of a recognition that you know we're a real contender. I mean, we are we are we are bigger than many of the record stores out there. Um, now, the music industry, and this was a challenge that we had that was unlike what Amazon had with books, was was. It was and maybe still is extraordinarily corrupt. And so there were things because we didn't keep the inventory, there were things that we couldn't do for the labels or the music distributors that someone that a brick and mortar player could do. And that was a struggle with us till the very end. So, for example, a, 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 a music label will reach out to to Target and say, you know, can you take a million dollar extra product for this holiday season? Don't worry, you can return it um, in February. So they could make their numbers look good for that year. We couldn't do that, right? We couldn't offer them all sorts of deals. So, you know, in exchange, do us this favor, you'll get an exclusive uh, Britney Spears um, uh, extended um, version. Um, you know, so, so there were things that hindered our ability to sort of be the, um, to, to, to work to to rise to the top of the music industry but we knew based on our volumes and based on our brand and based on how much attention was being paid to what it is that we were doing that 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 it was the start of of a change in the industry that that was um that that you couldn't back out of let's talk about then Amazon as a competitor. Uh, I actually, I, I, I'm sorry, this is a, a flaw in my research here. I don't actually know when Amazon starts introduces music. It's probably what ninety eight. Yeah, I can't recall exactly. Um, it was sort of midstream of 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 my tenure with CD. Now it might have been a little bit later than that. Um, and, and look, and, and Amazon reaches out to us early on and says, "Look, will you do our music for you? You know, for us. Um, you know, that's that that sort of makes a lot of sense." Um, we couldn't come to terms. They decide to do music on their own. By this point, we've acquired, we've merged with um, Music Boulevard mm-hmm. and gone public. So, you know, we kind of looked at Amazon getting into the music space. While, while it is threatening because Amazon was was somewhat of a dominant player, although you know certainly nothing like what they are today. Um, we, we knew that we were the music brand, right? Amazon was a book brand. We were the music brand. We had a, we had a, a building, 90,000 square feet full of people who knew everything there was to know about music. We, we would often run tests between our music, our, our customer service and Amazon's customer service. Um, our, our customers would send us a line from a song and we would immediately know what song that was and what album that was and send them a link to go buy it. Um, you, you know, you, you ask, you know, Amazon's customer service about a line in a song, you know, you don't get an answer. <laughs> so, so we felt that, you know, we weren't going to be the low price player, but we were going to be the music brand and the music service company. Right. So people would pay for our knowledge and, and the, and the experience of working with CD now. You know what? Maybe put put a pin in that thought because I, I want to come back mm-hmm. to that. But yeah, um, did you was, was there a realization 
that it, so obviously you guys are, are taking the we're going to specialize in our niche and so okay amazon maybe gets better press maybe gets better love from from wall street or whatever but if we concentrate in our niche we'll be fine do you is there a, a point where you realize no these guys are going to do everything and they don't care about niches they want to do it all um i think so but i i think it was by the time we realized that, it was almost too late. That was probably more on the, the, the decline end of CD now as opposed to the, the, the upswing of us. Um, so I, I don't think that was something that we were concerned about during, during my tenure with, um, with the company. So again, put a, put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. But um, So eventually you personally, um, you're the COO and then eventually the CEO. Uh, can you just give me the timeline of, of that, how, how that evolves? Yeah. Um, so you know, the, the CTO job, look, one, once you have 100% availability and a team in place, um, what does the CTO do, right? So, so the, the, there was there was so much more I could do for the business. I took over um, ultimately. It took accountability for customer service and product management, and um, and then an, enough of then then eventually distribution and fulfillment, um, because it's it's all about people and process, right? The the leadership skills that you develop in running a technology organization are transferable to really a lot of the other a lot of the other um, disciplines. So. So I, I moved very seamlessly from CTO to COO. Um, I didn't become CEO until until we decided to sell to Bertelsmann, and, and it was clear that Jason was going to step. Up. There was, um, you know, and we might be jumping ahead a little bit in the history, right? right but there, right. there was a period of time where where you know we real there was a, a number of deals that had fallen through. There was there was the the, the market was about to crash. There wasn't going to be capital for us, and we we saw that we had to sell the company. It was during that transition that that they looked more to me as to become the CEO as opposed to you know um, you know prior to that while Jason was still with the company. Okay, well yeah, let let let's do get into that. So yeah, uh, you know ninety nine is is the height of of the of the full on mania, um, but uh, by two thousand for the larger uh, context of the bubble, that's when things start to to turn. But also, it's interesting that at this exact time, when it comes to specifically music, things are starting to change because it's ninety nine two thousand that the MP three revolution starts to happen. Yeah, and I'd I'd love to know what how that evolved for you guys seeing MP threes become a thing. Well, well, so MP threes become a MP threes. We thought were the future of the music industry. Like we, we were not naive to think that shipping out physical CDs was where the industry was going to be long-term. Were there, were there plans in place to move in that direction, move to becoming we, we, a, we were, we were acquiring the licenses was, was very difficult, right? There were, so we worked with a whole bunch of third parties to, to be able to do it. People who were aggregating online content. Problem was that the music labels at the time, weren't weren't giving you the content that people wanted to buy in digital format um and it really you know and that didn't happen until you know amazon and uh, amazon until until apple and the the um the ipod and itunes right so so we were we were 10 years before that trying to do digital music and, and it was just way too early um the uh the industry wasn't there the, the music industry the technology wasn't there the bandwidth wasn't there um, I still have my first MP3 player. It was one of the uh, RCA Liras that I got while I was at CD Now. 
I don't use it, of course, but um, <laughs> because it takes those uh, those compact hard drives, right? Those compact drives. Well, and you could you uh, can get maybe one CD on there, at, or probably yeah. even not even that, right? Yeah. <laughs> the um, but um, you know, and and the technology to transfer music to your CD players, uh, your your MP3 players was was terrible. So we we sold music, we sold digital music, but we didn't sell anything that anybody wanted. Um, and that was that was sort of you know it, it was. So you're saying you you couldn't get the the Spice Girls and Britney Spears because you couldn't get those licenses. That's correct. Nobody, yeah. and and the it was a bad time to be transforming the music industry. What had happened was the music industry had spent the last decade converting everyone from records and cassettes to CDs. Um, so they made billions of dollars off of not creating new music but off of just reselling existing music. Back, back catalog stuff. Right. And then what happened was the salad days are over all of a sudden. It's like, hmm, everyone's already replaced their collections. We're having trouble selling CDs because, frankly, there's no new music. There's no good music. <laughs> you know, only, only so many people want to buy Britney Spears and NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys. And the, every, every genre of music was declining except for, um, I believe, hip-hop at the time was the, only, was the only growing segment of music. So, so the fact is that that um, it, the music industry was all of a sudden, you know, after hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in profits, are now facing um, facing losses, and so they're beca- they're clamping down, right? They're getting more protective, not more open. Um, they're worried now that people are going to steal music, and so they they really held on to their um their their old ways because they didn't they couldn't figure out what to do next and it's very different from the tv industry or the movie industry or the book industry which has always embraced new technologies sometimes kicking and screaming but the music industry has never done that well and also i sorry to interrupt but you you earlier said i believe you you said that the music industry was corrupt and i i you know listen this is almost famous now how hard even even steve jobs you know who had the reality distortion field had to work to to pull them kicking and screaming but was there something unique about the culture is there something unique about the culture of the recording industry that made it sort of just i don't know (laughs) a bitch to deal with or something i i i just think it's the I don't know that it's unique, you know, and I can't I, I can't look to other industries and compare them. It, it, it's it's difficult to look at them apples to apples. But the fact is that the way people make money in music was was a way that sort of made a small number of people extremely wealthy and consolidated power. And, and that's a really hard model to, to break. Well, it's a hard model to get the people that are making the money to break. Correct. And they're the people who have the power, though. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
So um, let let's do get to the what you would what you called the the sort of the downswing of CD now. So there are several in in ninety eight ninety nine two thousand. There are several abortive attempts to merge with people to um, get bought out by people. I mean, even like Columbia House and things like that. What are what is the what what's going on when um, we're reaching the 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 bubble bursting? So we there's a few things that happen. First, we we merge with Music Boulevard, right? The the idea was that look, they're they're nipping at our heels in part because they're doing they're doing things that we didn't think were good for the industry, like likely discounting couponing um, a product that already was low margin. I mean, how do you give free shipping and five dollars off a, a product that you can't that 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 only has two dollars of profit so um so our strategy was well we'll buy them and we'll integrate them with us and one and one is equal to three um of course one and one ultimately amounted to one and a half and really really distracted us um in a bad way and if you know if i had 2020 hindsight i could say bad mistake we should have just let them work themselves into oblivion by by making those sort of mistakes um, instead of taking those mistakes on and, and fixing them ourselves. Um, so, so we have, um, we, we did that, uh, after we realized that, you know, the, the market continues to be competitive margins continue to be, um, to, to be, um, compressed and we had been spending too much money. We needed more money, right? But that more money wasn't, wasn't readily available to us as the markets are starting to get uncomfortable. We also see the vision that that what all of these big music brands offline have to get online. So why don't we start to embrace them, and 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 maybe merge with an offline company? And that's when we decided to get together with Columbia House. Columbia House was the uh, the biggest um, music club, right? So they would they would ship music by mail, um, you know, typically not front catalog, mostly back catalog stuff. Um, and and they were you know they were they were a fairly you know multi hundred million dollar operation and we we thought bringing them together with us as the best of both worlds. Um, they had close relationships with the industry. They had a brand. They had customers. We had the technology and the e commerce piece, and they needed what we had, and we wanted what they had. Um, so we looked to do a merger of equals. Um, Columbia House was owned by Sony and Time Warner. It was a, they were a jointly owned. Um, so we decided to merge it, and CD Now would become sort of the online operations for the combined entity, and we started working towards building that. Well, along the way, what happens is that um, our, you know, through our due diligence, we realized that that um, Columbia House is losing far more money than anyone ever thought they were, which is a shock to Sony and Time Warner because um, because they weren't paying attention. Sony is already having a bad year, so they're a little bit uncomfortable about letting us um, about doing this deal because then they have even more losses that they have to recognize. Um, Time Warner all of a sudden is now in discussions with AOL to get acquired. Uh, so nine months into this deal, uh, they decide to cancel it. And at that point we're, we're on our own. How, did, how, did, how does it end up with Bertelsmann? So, so, so the, um, <laughs> story gets even more interesting. <laughs> um, so, so we said, all right, look, we either have to sell the company or go chapter 
uh, over chapter 11, there's no secondary market for money anymore. Um, and we're at this point still losing probably about $65 million a year. So, um, so the company was kept afloat based upon the fact that we had, you know, we, we had three day terms with our credit card providers and 90 day terms with, um, with our, our music vendors. So we were, we were living off the, the float of $150 million of, of e-commerce. Um, it's a beautiful so thing. It, it, it was, it was, I wonder that we, we should have just applied for a banking license. Um, the, so I start the chapter 11 at, at this point, I'm COO and, and, and Jason sort of backs off a little bit trying to you know, figure out what's next. And this is pretty emotional, you know, for, for Jason and Matt as, as you know, they're seeing their baby sort of, you know, in this precarious position. And so I, I did a lot of work with Jason, but uh, with our general counsel to sort of proceed down the two paths, either to get the company sold or to, to uh, take a chapter 11. And, and we, 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 we hired an investment banker. We put the company up for sale. We, we, we kissed a whole bunch of frogs. Um, ultimately we thought there was five companies that were interested in putting in a bid. And there was the day that all the bids were due and um, none of those companies, we got no bid submitted. So here we are thinking, all right, well now we've got to pull the trigger on chapter 11. Um, and, and then not too long after that, um, and, and this is more on Jason's end, I, I don't recall the dates, um, uh, you know, magic happened. So, so because of the AOL Time Warner merger, um, AOL has to divest their European operations. Well, because, because their Europe, AOL Europe was jointly owned between Bertelsmann and, um, and AOL. So right, AOL right. was forced to buy Bertelsmann for what I believe was $7 billion in cash. Um, so Bertelsmann all of a sudden is sitting on $7 billion in cash. So they decide to create the Bertelsmann e-commerce group and they take the, the guy who was the COO of AOL Europe, um, Andrea Schmidt, and put him in charge of the Bertelsmann e-commerce group. They give him a billion dollars. They say, go make us direct to consumer. Um, go so, shopping. <laughs> yep. And, and so we were his first purchase. Um, it was, it was, um, uh, you know, it, it was a lifesaver for us. We would have been chapter 11 otherwise. Uh, I, I want to come back to something else, but, um, how does it end up with Amazon in the end? I, I mean, it, it, in terms of as the company like progresses or the, at the, the very, very end? Yeah. The very, very end, the brand gets kicked around back and forth in this post Napster era. I'm sure it's chaotic. Um, but it, it, it actually, you know what, let me, let me take that back because you stay on after the, after the sale, right? Yeah. So I stay on, they make me CEO. Um, I spend half of my time in New York working with Bertelsmann and half of my time in Philly. They hate Philadelphia. Um, there's, you know, there, you know, Philadelphia doesn't have good talent. Philadelphia doesn't have experience in direct marketing. We can do it a lot better up here in New York. So they hire Booz Allen to, um, to go do a study and, and the study is, is, you know, already the answer is predetermined they want to close philadelphia down we do that dance for about a year and a half before they finally say look we're, we're folding your operations into into our new york department um who mostly was running a music club the bmg music service mm -hmm. and uh we'll, we'll we'll bring a few people up with us but for the most part we're shutting down philadelphia um and, and at that point uh, you know so so i spent a couple years you know sort of trying to make CD now better. And in fact, we were, we, we did turn the company around. So when I took over the company, we were about 150 
million, losing 65 million. A year later, our losses were down to 25 million. So we had a 40 million dollar improvement on the bottom line. So we really did have a plan to turn, you know, to make it, uh, you know, profitable and and ultimately um, scalable to the point where all the offline stuff could could easily be accommodated by online. Oh, so Even, I was going to say, so you're the the plan is you are actively transitioning to online sales, to digital sales, I should say. That was part of the plan. So in fact, one one of the things that I was asked to do, Bertelsmann had also um, given Napster a loan. Um, They'll call it. A, they'll call it a uh, loan. Um, they'll call it. A, they'll call it an investment. Napster guys will call it a loan. Um, so they 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 put us together with Napster, and they say, "CD, now you you make money off of selling music online. Napster, you don't, but you've got a brand and a lot of people. CD, now give Napster some revenue." <laughs> <laughs> so, so they lock me in a room with Hank Barry and Sean Fanning and say, "All right, well, um, go figure it out." <laughs> And ultimately, we did. We did incorporate a buy it now button on the uh, in the Napster client, and Napster did generate revenues from selling music um, legally. Um, but but the whole thing with Bertelsmann didn't last long. You know, a year and a half into it, they decide to close it. Um, after they shut CD Now down, what they decide to do was just operate the brand. So they they become, in a sense, an affiliate of Amazon, right? They become a, they, they let Amazon use the CD Now brand. They, oh, send all the tra- they send all the traffic to Amazon, and Bertelsmann gets a cut. So, so it's a super affiliate of, of uh, you know, of, of tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. It's just it's it's casting the brand to see, basically. So. Yes. Um. So a, a couple. I want to come back to a couple things. Um. Number one. Um. I, I have not gotten in, in our narrative yet to, to the point of Napster, and so I have not done the research, but obviously you're an excellent person to to talk about this era because you're dealing with, with record companies and, and you're, you're coming – it's right after the dot-com bust, but it's in the midst of, of Napster blowing up the record industry mm-hmm. yeah what what was that like like what was there a sense of just people running around with their hair on fire like not like it's all crashing down our entire business model like just speak a little bit to yeah. to what that environment was like working with the record companies at that point yeah you know what it was a little bit it it wasn't like that at least my recollection is it wasn't like that and mind you i only spent five years in the music industry you know with cd now and i i never went back and i never looked back <laughs> but the, the, um, the, you know, my observation was that there was a lot of legal maneuverings behind the scenes and ultimately, you know, in the courts. Um, but there wasn't a lot of panic because nobody thought it was sustainable, right? It, it was, they, they, in awareness that a tide was turning, there was a little bit of a panic because they didn't know what they were going to do about it. But there was also this feeling that, you know, we're, we're bigger, we're scarier, we have resources, we have money, this, their stuff won't last. Are they confident, well, they're confident it's a fad almost? Um, I would, yes, it, it, I would say that they, they were. Napster itself specifically or digital downloads in general? Uh, Napster itself, the, the peer-to-peer sharing, mm-hmm. right? They thought they could fix that in, in the courts. And, you know, look, I, I think ultimately they did. Right. Uh, uh, but the, um, the digital part, they were beginning to see that that was where they had to go. They just didn't know how to get there. And it wasn't until Steve Jobs made them go there that, that they figured it out. Uh, and, and your dealings with, um, with Napster and, and, um, 
Sean Fanning and those guys. Um, do do you feel like there was ever a chance that that could have been a real company, or your impressions of them? They they they. I don't think they want. I. I my, my interactions with them were somewhat limited, so I they were they were guarded in the conversations they had with us because they only they they viewed Bertelsmann as a debtor, not as a, not as an investor. So they were you know they were um they were they were being courteous to Bertelsmann. I don't think they were um as as in bed with them as as Bertelsmann would have liked to think. So I only got to see a very skewed perspective, but um. Uh, you know, I, one would think because Hank Barry had gotten involved that that they were looking to legitimize the business, but I didn't see any evidence of that happening. Um, and and then let's come back to the the thing that I wanted you to put the pin in, and and so this comes back to the the e-commerce roots of of CD now, um, and and we we've sort of touched on uh, the idea that. You know, looking back on it now, you would think of this history of, well, it's obvious. Um, Amazon is e-commerce. It does everything. It's the steamroll that, that steamrolls everything. But I remember at the time being actually a pretty loyal CD Now customer. And, and even now in retrospect, like, I don't think it's that obvious. Why couldn't there be more stronger niches in e-commerce? Um, and, and I, I'm not asking you to, <laughs> to have an answer for that, but th- like, do you feel in retrospect that there were things that you, that CD now could have done to, to, to hide in its niche, to protect its niche and, 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 and to have thrived there? Um, I think we did all we could do. Um, the, the, you know, we, between our stellar customer service, raising content and all of our uh, all of our you know relationships with with the big names in music um I, you know we it was everything that we could do i think the challenge was that we were in a in a market where margins were low often retailers the big box retailers especially would use music as a as a loss leader to get people in the doors um that that you know a, a, a niche that requires, you know, a niche for a commodity product, right? It doesn't matter where you buy the music, right? right? It, it, a commodity low margin product, I, I just don't think makes a successful niche business, right? Most of the successful niche markets have been in, you know, higher margin differentiable right, products, right, you know, right. Black, you know, eyewear and clothes and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, because music is a commodity, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it would ever had the chance to be differentiated, you know, kind of like music, kind of like in a way that, you know what, that, I, I, that never occurred to me, but you're right at the time. And it's to some extent till still today, but more at that time, uh, uh, DVDs and CDs were loss leaders that that was the business model of Walmart and Best Buy to get you mm-hmm. in the store. And then, yeah, boy, that never occurred to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, how do you compete with that? Right. You can't, you know, I've, I've got a market to get people in my door. I've got a, I've got a, you know, pay to, to ship product to people and, and I've got a whole bunch of technology to support. And back then the technology was not cheap. I mean, it's not like it is today. Um, so, so, you know, it's, if people are taking what I'm doing and using it as a loss leader, I don't, I don't see a sustainable business there. Hmm. 
Well, um, let's uh, let's end by uh, you said that you you were in uh, the the music business, quote unquote, for a, a, a four or five years, but you haven't looked back. You, you've gone on to do a bunch of other stuff uh, with all sorts of varied uh, tech companies. Um, right now, I believe you're you're with uh, Intranet and Trajectify. Those are the yep. two projects you're working on. Tell tell us about those. Sure. When I left my seventh startup, Real Food Works, um, which was my first startup in the food space. But I said, no more. I'm, I'm, I'm done with startups. Um, I, I, I went around to investors and, and entrepreneurs and service providers to try to find holes in the market. And, and a lot of people were complaining about mentoring. And after I peeled the layers, I found that it was really about coaching. And so I started a coaching practice for entrepreneurs and um, within five weeks had five clients. And it was, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I it, the, the, the offering I was putting together, the services I was I was packaging for these entrepreneurs were were sort of the, uh, a good product market fit. So I've been spending the last year and a half now honing that that coaching practice, doing peer groups and private coaching and um, organizing events um, in a way that that gives a more contemporary view to entre- you know coaching entrepreneurs from both a leadership perspective. You know, growing their performance and pushing them out of their comfort zone, to you know, to to use that to affect growth of their business, hmm. um, and so that uh, and predominantly, you know, uh, entrepreneurs who are, who who are in the growth stages, right, who are, have a you know quarter half million dollars revenue or more, and are wondering, you know, what do I need to become? What does the company need to become for me to double that? Um, so that that's where I spend most of my time, but. But along the way, I, um, I, meet a, I meet a co-founder, Martin Babinick, who happens to be the founder of Trinet. He's got this idea for a tech startup. And, and, and I, I think at that point, I realized that um, being a, a tech entrepreneur is an addiction. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't say no. I had to find a way to make it work. I really wanted to work on the product, and I really wanted to work with Martin. So we formed Intronet, which is a system that initially has been built to facilitate introductions. Um, but but longer term, it's it's really about relationship capital, about being able to to measure and visualize and, and increase relationship capital. Um, and we've been we've been working on that for about a year and, and have learned a lot and are in the in the process of putting together the roadmap for the for the next few years based on what we've learned. That's you know what I I I just put together that the way that that you and I uh, uh, put together this interview was was <laughs> through Trajectify through your uh, one of your companies, yeah. um, which actually by the way, uh, <laughs> it was actually really uh, cool. So <laughs> I, I recommend people checking that out. Yeah, thanks. Um, well. Uh, Mike, I wanted, I want to thank you for, uh, uh, taking the time to remember all this for us. Um, I, again, I think I mentioned, I, I, I loved CD now back in the day. <laughs> so I was, I was really eager to, to do, um, some sort of, a, a, a profile on them. And also I really identified with their founding story personally, but, um, also again, um, unlike, you know, I've, I've interviewed almost all of the key people for the various, um, search engines and and web browsers and things like that but i don't want the story of e-commerce to just be well amazon came and as amazon was and that's it because there was a lot of other pioneers so um i'm, right. I'm glad that you were able to um to uh share some of of, of those pioneering e-commerce stories with cd now well thanks very much brian for giving me the opportunity to do, to do that if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. 
there's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. <laughs>